Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply. The world's record. First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Hello everybody and welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our great friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, we're joined by one of the finest footballers Australia has produced and a Socceroos legend. John Aloisi was the first Australian to play and score in Spain's La Liga, the English Premier League and Italy's Serie A. And the striker was an integral member of the national team for more than a decade, earning 55 caps, 27 goals and worldwide recognition. Yet it was in green and gold that he converted the most pivotal penalty in the history of the sport in this country and indeed one of Australia's greatest sporting moments. John, hello and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Please tell me you've never had to buy a beer again after that magical night against Uruguay in 2005. <laughs> oh, I've had to buy plenty of beers, but uh, look, it's something that's always brought up uh, amongst people that obviously were around during that era. The younger generation probably don't remember until someone shows them on a YouTube clip or something like that. But, uh, you know, it was a, a special night and I was just fortunate to be part of such a, an occasion. You know, 32 years in the waiting to get back to a World Cup and, and the way it all ended up, uh, you know, in a penalty shootout was uh, was amazing. We'll come back to that magical night later because to go forward, you have to go back, of course. You were born in Adelaide in 1976, one of five children to Rocky and Helen Aloisi. Where do you sit in the order there, John? I'm third. I've got uh, an older sister that's five years older and my brother, Ross, who also played and uh, yeah. also coaching, uh, three years older than me. Uh, and then I've got two younger sisters that are uh, five and ten years younger. So we're quite spread out. I'm no child psychologist, of course. What do they say about middle children? You have to fight for everything there, don't you? <laughs> well, I definitely had to fight over my brother. That was uh, for sure. Being three years older, I think that's what pushed me a lot. Um, not only you know with uh, with football, but just in, in general. You know, I had to uh, really scrap at home for for things, and um, but I, it probably helped me in good stead. So the family home was in suburban Hectorville there outside Adelaide. Was it a hectic household with five kids running around, John? And you mentioned your brother Ross there. I imagine there was damage done to everything over the journey with various balls in the backyard. <laughs> well, it was damage. I can't believe how many windows we would have broken or we did break at, at home in the backyard. Um, it wasn't only just playing uh, soccer. It was, you know, we, we were into our cricket in the summer, uh, especially, and then uh, we would just play all sports. And uh, we had a, a pool table. We played snooker, and um, and so a few uh, cue sticks got thrown around. Uh, table tennis, bats flying around. Uh, 
my mums used to say that we're going to kill each other one day, but uh, it was all part of that. We just wanted to win. We just hated losing. Um, and uh, but the, the, the household in itself, the, I felt sorry for the girls because you know the boys overtook, even though there were three of them, um, we were just a, a lot more rowdy than them. Just on that competitiveness, I think Ross once said that it didn't matter what it was you were playing, that your dad, your old man Rocky, would just never allow you to win. He wouldn't let you win ever. No, not in anything. It was uh, we, we used to play uh, quite a bit of sport with him as well. Not that he was great at soccer, but uh, he could uh, hold his own a little bit when we were younger. But uh, mainly it was, you know, cricket and uh, with uh, snooker, you know, he would never let us win. And and cricket, he was a fast bowler. He was a mean fast bowler. So I didn't really like facing him at all. (laughs) He migrated to Australia from Calabria. Nine years of age, I think he was. 1956, after your grandfather had earlier made the trip down under. He was a a cabinet maker by trade, I think. Um... What did he and your mum instill in you and your siblings growing up, your values? It's, uh, you've done your research. Uh, yeah, he was nine, um, and uh, he was also you know, one of five uh, kids. They had, uh, he had three other brothers and, and a sister. But uh, the, the main thing that they did instill was just hard work and, and respect. Uh, I think they were the two main things. And, uh, you know, my dad... Uh, you know, he uh, a cabinet maker by trade and ended up uh, owning uh, his business with uh, my uncle. And, uh, you know, so we used to hear him get up at uh, five in the morning to go off to work. And then, you know, especially when we were younger, we didn't see him come through the door sometimes until after he was, uh, he had his soccer training because he was coaching about 8.30 at night. And so it was uh, one of those things that uh, I knew that he worked hard. He never gave up. Uh, in anything that he did, and uh, and my mum was always there to, you know, make sure that we were we were well looked after at home, but also they were respectful in the way that we uh, conducted ourselves. Mm. And religion played a big part early on too, didn't it? Even now, I think you had a Catholic upbringing. You went to Catholic schools, and I think it was mass every Sunday. Yeah, mass every Sunday, um, which was uh, a, a given w- within our family. But also, that was uh, our cousins used to go to the same church uh, quite a bit. So then, you know, that was a chance for us to either catch up with them before or after. Um, and yeah, you know, Catholic religion, uh, you know, was big in our household, and uh, it still is. It's amazing to think that all these years on, you mentioned, Ross, that you would play against each other, coach together. What kept you coming back to football? You mentioned all the other sports you play, but what was it that you had the blinkers on in the end for the for the round ball? I think it was just that was probably the game that we were most passionate about. Um, you know, Ross was probably better uh, at cricket than what I was, but... Uh, you know, cricket still can be pretty individual when you when you think about it. You know, you're out there in the middle by yourself, or if you're bowling, it's you know you're the one that's uh, that's you know front and centre. Uh, in the field, you haven't really got unless you're in the slip, you haven't got anyone to chat to. Whereas with uh, with soccer, it was more a team environment, and there's probably uh, something that we really enjoyed and, uh, and and you know we're passionate about it as kids. You know, we used to watch. Uh, World Cups together and, uh, you know, go watch Adelaide City uh, on the weekend, which is a team that we followed in the old NSL. And um, and it's something that we dreamt about playing, you know, when we got older, playing for, for Adelaide City in, in the National League. 
Well, I don't think you were that old. In fact, you were very young. When did you, a young John Aloisi play his first game? You kicked the ball in anger for the first time. Yeah. Um, well, when I played for the, the National League side, you mean, the Adelaide City? No, just the first game you played as a, oh. as a little tacker. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't very old. I was only five years old. It, it was. Uh, it was funny because of since I remember, I was kicking the ball around. So I must have started kicking the ball around when I was about two or three years old. But um, uh, a year before that, I was four years old, and my brother's team was short of a player, and they wanted to, you know, me to fill in, and I said <laughs> no, and I just didn't feel like, you know, playing this. There was a story from my parents, and then. A year later, I said, I want to play. And so they found a club for me. And um, it was one of the only clubs that would accept a, a five-year-old. And then, you know, from there, I just uh, kept on playing. Fantastic. And you mentioned Adelaide City in the NSL. You were 15 when you made your debut for them. Oh, you were a young man in a hurry, John. Yeah, I was. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was incredible time because I was only in year 11 at school. And, um, and you know, to, to actually play with senior players and I was training a lot with the senior players for about a year before I made my debut but um, you know it was uh, it was something that uh, they made sure that you didn't get carried away with yourself and that uh, you know you had to hold your own especially um, you know in, in training with older professionals because uh, they would kick you no matter what and, uh, and make sure that you knew where you were and and but that uh, made me a lot stronger as a as a player and as a as a person. So at 15, I know it was young, but I felt ready at that time to to be you know playing with uh, those players. And wasn't there an early John Crossroad moment? I might have even been on debut. There was a physical altercation between you and another player. Yeah, there was. We we're playing Melbourne Croatia now. They're they're called Melbourne Knights and. Uh, and there was uh, a player, I, I just made, uh, I came on and within five minutes, uh, I felt someone kick me and I, I went to the floor and uh, and then as I was about to get up, he pushed my face down and uh, and all I was was on the floor. Then all of a sudden, I feel there were these people around me. I didn't realise what had happened until after the game, one of the supporters jumped the fence and went to go punch the uh, the player, that, um, the one that I had an altercation with and the next day was front page of the paper, so it wasn't about me making my debut as a 15-year-old. It was more about there was a bit of fan violence. Gee, so that didn't discourage you at all? It must have, At 15 years of age, you're pretty raw at that age to state the obvious. Did it rock you a bit? No, it didn't. It, it, I just uh, didn't think much of it. I just thought, uh, you know, I was protected. Uh, you know, funny enough, my brother was on the field um, beforehand. He got subbed, and then... All of a sudden, I, I feel him next to me, and I said, what are you doing here? And he just sprinted over from the bench uh, to see if I was okay. So I always thought that I had my, my brother there to support me, but also my teammates were there to, to look after me as well. No, nothing was going to stop you. You're on the fast track to the top, no doubt about that. There was then a stint at the Australian Institute of Sport, I think, and then a huge opportunity presented itself. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. And up next, John Aloisi on that life-changing decision he made as a youngster to leave his family and friends behind to chase a professional career overseas. All right, mate, we'll... You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're with Aussie football legend John Aloisi. Well, John, at only 16, you travel to Belgium for a trial with Standard Liège, and you think about all the things that you don't know at that age, and here you are, leaving family behind to go to the other side of the world. I mean, the obvious question is, how difficult was this time in your life? Oh, that was definitely the most difficult time I had in my, my life and my, my footballing career because, uh, you know, you get over there and, um, you know, you are a foreigner, um, you know, the players, you're, you're taking a local spot and um, and they don't really make life easy for you. And, and plus I went to uh, Liège, which was a French-speaking part of Belgium. So, you know, I couldn't really speak any other language other than English. And, um, and then all of a sudden, you know, no one speaks English and I have to learn French and uh, it was freezing over there. I think when I arrived was uh, around January. So it was about uh, minus five, minus six degrees. So that was a, a rude awakening. And then, you know, being from an Italian background, I was pretty spoilt when I was younger, uh, you know, in terms of the people, well, my mum mainly, looking mm. after me and, and cooking for me and doing everything for me to... You know, doing that all by myself, and uh, it, it was hard going. And, and back then, there was no, you know, skyping or zooming or, or uh, FaceTime. It was, you mm. know, call your family whenever you can from a, a public phone, and um, and just you know, make the most of uh, the opportunity. Yeah, public phone boxes. Remember those, and and snail mail as well. <laughs> yeah. But what what were the arrangements though john so no one at all came over from australia were you living with anyone at the time or did that was there a chaperone with you or were you pretty much left to your own devices i was uh, the, the first six months i was there and where the, the, the team used to train so i was living by myself and then uh, after a month another player moved in with me but uh, lucky enough that i was able to uh, have dinner most days at uh, the, the restaurant at the club there so that that was good, but um, everything else in terms of washing and uh, and you know living and doing all that stuff by yourself, you know, I had to do. So it was uh, it was an eye opener and uh, it was hard going, and I I did feel homesick. I'd say for the first two years of being away, but um, just the dream of playing professional football and playing at the highest level in Europe was uh, enough to keep me over there. Oh, amazing. You must have had so many moments where you just thought about uh, getting on the next plane out of there and you stuck at it though and it was at your next club, Antwerp, I think. The two-year stint there where your career really started to blossom, wasn't it? Yeah, that's uh, at Liège. I was mainly playing reserve team football and uh, so after six months I moved to Royal Antwerp, which that, that's when I did live uh, by myself and, you know, it wasn't at the, the training ground and but um, the good thing there is that I made my debut at, at 17 there and um, quite fortunate that I was able to score on my debut and, and then yeah. start to get game time slowly. So it, was, uh, you know, it wasn't like I was a starting 11 player straight away. You, know, you, you play uh, a few minutes here, a few minutes there, and then you know, slowly you work your way into the team. But that was, that was great for, for my, uh, the start of my career because you know, I was getting that experience of playing football. And Cremonese was next in Serie A at the time, of course. Now, this was a big move to a win-at-all-costs league. I mean, was it a huge step up in terms of professionalism and the like? 
Yeah, it was a huge step and probably uh, too early for me. I, I still hadn't had enough experience at uh, probably a lower league like Belgium um, because Serie A at the time was the, the best league in, in Europe, if not the world, and you had only three foreigners uh, in your side. So I was one of the uh, the three at Cremonese and, and we were a team battling uh, relegation. So when I arrived, we were in, the, I think, we bottom uh, because I arrived halfway through the season and that was when I, I did really feel it started well for me. I scored again pretty early uh, in my in my Cremonese uh, career, and then after that we were struggling to get results. And who do they go to first? They go to the, the foreigners, and and also being a striker. And uh, that was the first time I really felt pressure, and and I didn't deal with it well. I, I struggled to deal with it, and uh, that was a hard time in in my career as well. Yeah, and it, w- it was preparation and presentation to an obsessive level, wasn't it? Didn't you get scolded once because your socks were a bit shorter than the rest of your yeah. teammates? <laughs> yeah, I did. Well, preparation in Italy is, is it was everything. You know, it was from uh, the food you ate and the, you know everything uh, around that. But it was also to, to what you wore to, to games and what you wore to training. They used to make sure you blow dried your hair before you left the the changing room because uh, or else you might catch a cold outside if it was too cold or too windy. Um, but I did, uh, before one of the games, um, I wore our normal socks that we normally wear, but over in, in Italy, they all wear the, the socks that go up to your knees and um, the, the coach in front of the whole group that embarrassed me and said, you know, <laughs> you're not in Australia now, you're in Italy, you have to dress the, in the right way and, uh, you know, you have to start to grow up. So it was it was a bit embarrassing, but I, I was just thinking far out. The yeah, the Italians are so into you know so much, so even their dress sense. Yeah, and you played in the English first division with Portsmouth, and then the top flight there with Coventry City before moving to Spain. And it was there where you spent the most time at the one club. 121 appearances for Osasuna in the Liga. Did you feel like you also played some of your best football of your career there? Yeah, I, I definitely played my best football in Spain. I think that that time there, I I really felt comfortable uh, in terms of uh, in my experience uh, on the pitch. I knew how to deal with the pressure a lot better. I knew how to deal with uh, certain situations because, again, you know, you had your ups and downs, uh, whether it's through injury, which I had a lot of injuries while I was in England at Coventry. Um, but, um, you know, I was able to probably play my best football at Osasuna and then Alaves, and uh, and that's where I, I probably enjoyed my football the most as well. In 2004, there's a scoreline that stands out. You play in a 3-0 win over Real Madrid at, at none other than the Bernabeu. Now, the Galacticos didn't lose too often. They certainly didn't lose like that too often. Now, which celebrated names were on the wrong end of the scoreline that day? Oh, there's a few of them. There was uh, Roberto Carlos, uh, uh, famous uh, left-back uh, for Brazil and for Real Madrid. There was Casillas in goals, probably the, the all-time uh, leading mm. um, in terms of caps for Spain, but, but now Sergio Ramos has probably overtaken him. And then you had a World Cup winner. You had um, you had Beckham in the side. You had uh, Zidane, uh, Figo. Role they they just had stars everywhere and it was that period there where they they signed all those big stars and they were called the Galacticos and you know were their little Osasuna which is a, a team north of Spain that um, just five years before were in second division and uh, hadn't won at the Bernabeu I don't think for something like thirty odd years so it was a massive result for us and uh, especially to to beat them.
That's a special stadium, isn't it? What is the most intimidating venue that you, that you reckon you played in? I would say uh, that was probably the best stadium I've ever played in. I, I wouldn't say intimidating in terms of the crowd because the crowd can get on the opposite. Well, they can get on Real Madrid uh, <laughs> players' backs very quickly, which they yep. did that night. The white handkerchiefs came out, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> which they do in Spain when they're in disgust with their team and uh, you know Fantastic. they whistle their players, and uh, so that was. Uh, but the, the most intimidating probably atmosphere, and we might get into a little bit later, was probably um, Uruguay away in, the, mm. in Montevideo. And, and also when I used to go down and play in Seville against Sevilla, they, uh, their supporters were quite intimidating. But uh, that was all, you know, I, I enjoyed that atmosphere as well. Just getting back to Osasuna the next year, so 2005, you actually netted in the Copa del Rey final. I think it was your last game for the club, it turned out. You equalised in what was an eventual 1-2 extra time loss to Real Betis. It was the first time the club had made a final as well. I mean, how special must that have been to score in it? Yeah, special moment. Um, not only for myself, but for the club in general, because it is, I think their 100-year anniversary this year and the only final they've ever made uh, was that year there in 2005. And so I, I went back to Spain last year and visited uh, Pamplona where Osasuna is and um, still people were stopping me on the street to talk about that uh, final So and Great. that goal. So it, it is a special moment and, and the atmosphere that day was something that uh, will always live with me. It was, uh, it was so... Um, it was it played at Atletico Madrid Stadium, uh, their old stadium, and there was... 55,000 people and half the crowd were Real Betis fans and half were Osasuna fans and they all wore their red and um, and I scored down the end where the Osasuna fans were and just it was uh, it was incredible the the atmosphere and the way that uh, they were uh, celebrating that goal. Fantastic and just you mentioned you went back to Pamplona I mean you would go on to play at I think 12 different clubs across the entirety of your career four countries 459 club goals or appearances rather 127 goals which one do you most associate yourself with looking back Osasuna is uh, the club that I uh, it's not that I just associate myself with it is where I enjoyed my football the most but I felt part of the family um, and that that was a real family club a lot of uh, players that played in that team were from Pamplona and then they, they came through the, the academy there and and uh, and they were close friends of mine, and, and and still are. So when I go back, I you know catch up with a lot of them, and uh, and you really felt that that uh, you're part of that football club, and uh, mm. you know even people working in the office were ex-players, so they they look after their their ex-players, and um, and that's where I felt why they're so successful in in terms of you know playing in the top leagues because. You know, they didn't have the, the money of a Real Madrid, but they were still able to compete with them. Yeah, and just with all these, John, all these experiences at the pinnacle of the sport, we touched on the Galacticos just a few moments ago. Who else stands out as the best you played against in all these celebrated leagues? What jerseys did you swap and what ones have you got at home there? Yeah, I've got a, a few nice ones at home. Not that I've got them hanging up anywhere. They're in the, the covers or in boxes. But uh, I do have Beckham's at Real Madrid. Uh, also, Raul, who's a famous striker there. Um, a few Barcelona ones. Uh, Patrick Clover, who was a striker there. And, and De Boer, um, who defended at uh, Barcelona. Then 
there was you know quite a few uh, Valencia players and when I was in Italy I got the AC Milan jersey um, so it was something that uh, you know you just used to swap after a game or uh, but you know I thought that maybe I'd have a, a a pool room that uh, would have all my jerseys hanging up, but I haven't done that. I've just uh, left them in the boxes. Maybe in time. And you're a cultured man too, given your travels, of course. I know you speak Spanish, Italian as well, I would assume, and you mentioned French earlier. So how many languages have you got under the belt there? Yeah, none good. <laughs> I can say that. <laughs> I, no, Spanish is probably the, the one after English, obviously, that uh, I, I feel more comfortable with. The Italian I started to lose once I went to to Spain. I, you know, I understand that that uh, mm. I'm not so comfortable in speaking it. And, and French, I don't think I remember too much about French. That was that long ago. I, I sort of lost that language. But uh, no, I, I was glad to to be able to learn a language like Spanish because you know it's so spoken throughout the world and especially South America and Central America, which uh, you know I love visiting when I can. I don't know how you go in the kitchen, John, but you'd have a couple of signature dishes from your travels too, I'd assume. My wife's got very good signature dishes. <laughs> I'm, I'm good at eating, but I've, I've started to learn how to cook a little bit, but uh, I'm, I'm not great at it. Uh, I'll leave that to my wife more, more, than, more often than not. Well played, well played. And you obviously came back to finish your career where it all started in Australia, of course, with the A-League that had, that had well and truly come on board by the time you returned. You had stints at Central Coast, Sydney FC, where you won the title, and Melbourne Heart. Was it a nice way to finish off? You obviously want to contribute right up until the end, but sometimes, um, you know, uh, I guess with the age that we all get to, we slow down eventually. Were you happy with the way it finished off? Um, looking back, I, I probably uh, could have finished a little bit earlier because um, I had a bad knee injury that, uh, that for the last probably three years of my career, I, I was struggling. I was struggling to, to train through uh, the week and then, you know, get back up for a game on the weekend. And, and you know, your mind uh, is telling you what to do in terms of when you're out on the pitch, where you should be and, and you know, the runs you should make, but the, the body's not following as quickly as it should. And um, but I, I probably wasn't enjoying my football as much because I wasn't able to uh, play at the level or be at the level that I wanted to be. But um, I still, you know, the, tried to, to give my all and um, and make sure that I was able to pass on the knowledge to the younger players, which was I thought was important. So it was, uh, yeah. Look, you know, sometimes you look back and you think that. Um, Maybe I went on a little bit too long in terms of with my injuries, but uh, I still enjoyed playing football. That was the, the main thing. You're with This Is Your Sporting Life, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. After this break, John Aloisi's memories of a glittering Socceroos career and that history-making penalty against Uruguay. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with former Socceroo John Aloisi. John, you grew up obsessed with the game, playing it and watching it, but you'd never seen Australia play in a World Cup. But on November 16, 2005, in Sydney, 
You helped rewrite history with the decisive spot kick that defeated Uruguay and sent the Socceroos to Germany 2006. The the memories of this night and that playoff series must live on with you so prominently even now. Yeah, it does. Uh, look, the, the World Cup was definitely a highlight of my career. And, and, and speaking to the, the teammates that uh, went to the World Cup, they would say the same thing. It was... Uh, an incredible experience and uh, and something that will definitely live with us. But uh, even if you're not thinking about it, uh, you know, people will bring up um, that that night against Uruguay. It was, uh, you know, a lot of people remember it, even if they weren't there, uh, which I'm sure I've met uh, 130,000 people that say they were there, but there was only <laughs> 83,000 people. Um, and they just, they just want to know and, uh, you know the way I felt and what it was like, but also they want to tell me what they were doing and and how they felt and um, and so it's actually a, you know a nice uh, thing to talk about because you know everyone has their uh, different memories of it and uh, you know we all had special memories that's for sure. Yeah, it was such a where were you when moment, wasn't it? And it was a really powerful and emotional night. How often, I mean, we're in a different world at the moment with COVID, but when we were free to move around more freely, how often would you get stopped and asked about that night in 2005 against Uruguay? Well, if I meet someone different, uh, they would definitely ask me. Um, (laughs) It it can be nearly every day, uh, you know, that's even like someone younger that wasn't even alive, someone might tell them and then they want to, find out you know what it was like and and whatever else but uh yeah it can be it can be pretty often you know sometimes i I'll hear people scream out uh Aloisi, the the way that simon hill screamed it out not that i don't think it was that uh penalty it was more from the yep. world cup yep. um but it was uh yeah so i get i get stopped often but it's something that you know uh, again, in sport, I played for 20-odd years and to be remembered for one moment, um, which a lot of players or you know athletes are remembered for something, it's it's good to be remembered for something positive, that's for sure. Oh, fantastic. And, and take us into the night itself, if you can. Obviously, Marco Bresciano scores. It's 1-1 on aggregate, right throughout normal time, right throughout extra time. It comes to the unthinkable. Uh, the tension is just... Uh, palpable before the penalty shootout take us onto the pitch what what was said before the shootout when the boys gathered together the only thing that i can remember that was said was um was grandma Arnold coming around seeing who was uh, who wanted to take a penalty so seeing who was confident enough to take a penalty because as you said it's a pressure moment um, and I said that I was, and uh, he said, okay, I'll put you number one. I said, no, no, put me number five. Um, it, it was just a, a feeling I had, not only uh, that night, but leading into the game, um, yeah, leading in from four years earlier, because I only played a little bit of a part of the, the Uruguay game four years earlier in the qualification. I think I only played five minutes in the two legs. And so it was something that was in my mind that I was going to uh, be there and, and score the goal that will take Australia to the World Cup. I, I've been uh, not only saying it to myself, I've been saying it to my wife and uh, anyone that would uh, would listen to me that I was going to be there to, to score the winning goal. And so that's why I asked to go number five because I had that feeling that uh, I was going to be the one that would take the winning penalty. Like a premonition almost. 
it was, uh, and it was something that the, I didn't even realise that uh, even I was telling my teammates, I told Mark Raduka uh, probably six months earlier, we were out in London after a game, and um, and I, I told him that I was going to score the winning goal. And the, the next night, well, that night there that uh, I did score, he uh, he reminded me, and I, I felt embarrassed that, uh, that I was even telling someone, that was our captain, that I was going to score the winning goal. But it was it was something that was so set in my mind, and uh, that it was going to happen, and uh, it eventually did. Absolutely amazing. And the fact that you've been thinking about it for that long, had you actually been thinking about the kick itself for that long, about where you would put it and how you would like to take it? Had you been rock solid on how you would do that that far out as well? No. I, I Look, I didn't know it was going to go to a penalty shootout and I didn't know that uh, you know the way I scored the winning goal was going to be a penalty. I just thought it would be normal time. But um, I had uh, had my... Um, experiences with penalties. I, as a 14-year-old, I was playing in a, a semi-final with Adelaide City in the under-18s, and um, I was—I uh, I got to take the last penalty, and uh, that it was to stay in the the actual penalty shootout, and and I missed, and uh, it was the worst feeling I ever had. I know I remember it clearly because. My teammate, uh, one of my teammates, when I walked inside, you know, these are 17-year-old boys crying, and I was the youngest in the in the group, and uh, and one of them uh, punched the wall, thinking it was just uh, a, a sort of a wooden plasticky wall, and that uh, there was solid brick behind, and he broke his wrist, and I remember the scream, and then I I felt like absolute crap, thinking, well. This is uh, this is not not great. It's not a great feeling. But uh, from that day on, I thought, well, if I ever get myself or put myself in this situation again, I need to be ready. So, I used to practice penalties quite a bit. I used to practice finishing after training quite a bit, and then end up doing penalties. So, I knew uh, where my strongest side was. I'd experienced taking penalties on uh, uh, with Osasuna and and a few of my other clubs. So. I was ready for that moment, and uh, and I was confident that I was gonna gonna score. So when you you walk up to place the ball on the spot, and the stadium holds its breath, when did you actually decide you were going to go to the keeper's left? I decided the day before because we uh, we practiced penalties down that end uh, after training. Well, we we all had a, a penalty that we uh, were able to take before training, but after training, I I stayed behind with Lucas Neal. And Ante Kovic, who was our third choice keeper, and uh, and I took five penalties, and they were all on that side, and I, I just felt comfortable and, and confident, and so I knew that the night before, if we did go to penalties, or if I did happen to take one, where I was going to go, and uh, and so walking up from the halfway line to the penalty spot was completely different to when I was 14 years old. I was so nervous when I was 14; my legs felt like jelly. Um, but this time it was it was a confidence uh, that was just I was just saying to myself do exactly what I did uh, the night before and and we're going to go to the World Cup and there were 83,000 people in there but I could just hear like sort of murmurs whispers uh, it was uh, it was just like that it was it was me and the goalkeeper the only people in the stadium so it was a, a bit of a, a surreal feeling. The feeling when it went in and nestled in the back of the net, I can't even imagine what that felt like. You rip the top off, you start running around half naked. Can you take us there? Yeah, well, if you see the, the photo, um, just as I'm taking a penalty, so my, my head's down, and, uh, you know, because if you, your head's too far up or too far back, then you're going to hit it too high that it goes over the bar. So 
I've got my head over the ball. Um, as I hit it, I've looked up and I can just see uh, the ball going into the net. But, um, and so I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a goal, but I'm not 100% sure. So I've, I've sort of run off to ce- start celebrating, but my face is a little bit stunned until uh, probably a half a second later, I see the net move and then the crowd just erupt. And that's when I knew it was definitely in. And uh, and then just all the emotions came out, though. Ripping off my top uh, was something that wasn't planned, but where I was running to was, was planned because I knew where my family and the families of uh, my teammates were sitting, and I went to celebrate right where they were. So, yeah, that was uh, a special moment, too. And in keeping with a completely crazy night, didn't you then find yourself singing Grease Lightning with John Travolta in the dressing room? <laughs> yeah, that was... That was probably the highlight of our night. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, look, we all we all loved the, that we qualified, and uh, we all loved that we were going to a World Cup finally. But uh, to see John Travolta in the change room, it was uh, it was something that that we uh, most of us had grown up watching Greece and probably watched it a hundred times, and uh, we just thought Danny Zuko was so cool. But uh, seeing him in the change room after the game tr- and trying to sing Greece Lightning with him was uh, was a funny moment. <laughs> I don't know if Gus Hiddink uh, took part, but he had orchestrated what so many before him had obviously tried and failed to do. He'd got Australia into a World Cup. Now, he had a real aura about him, uh, Gus Hiddink, but what made him so special, do you think, John? I think that, uh, like you said, he had an aura. Um, We all knew what he had achieved uh, earlier on in his coaching career and and just before he... um, he took over the Socceroos, not only with uh, South Korea, but also with the Dutch national team. With uh, He coached Real Madrid, which were probably one of the biggest clubs, if not the biggest club in the world in terms of their history. Um, but I, what I felt the most was in a big game and pressure moments, he was just so calm. And uh, that calmness uh, ended up uh, coming over to us players because... You know, we you don't need to motivate a player for such a big game. You actually need to take the nerves away from him. And I think he did that just in the way he acted, you know, not only on the sideline, but in the changing room before the game. He, You know, I recall in Montevideo, you know, we're all so focused on the game and, and, and the energy's there and, and just the, the, the pressure of such a game is there in the room and you really feel it. He's just watching um, some game that uh, he recorded, and you know, and, and showing players. Oh, look at you know this player. Look how good he is. And it had nothing to do with our game. Um, so it, it just sort of showed that he wasn't worried. That we we're prepared and we we're ready, and uh, and we felt ready for that for that moment. Did he allow the players to be friends with him? No, no, no. He he was he was ruthless. He um, in training and and most friendly games that we had leading up to the, that big game, he would just be on our back. Um, he was he was hard and, uh, and and you know, he could he could actually cut you with his words, you know, sometimes he was that ruthless and you know, he, he didn't uh, think twice about um, you know, putting pressure on you in training because he felt that uh, if you could deal with that then you could deal with the pressure moments on, on the pitch and uh but no, none of us were friends with him, that's for sure. Even the ones that he liked, and he liked a few more than he liked others, they still weren't friends with him. Mm. 
And at the World Cup itself in 2006, obviously Australia's first appearance in 32 years. Hadn't scored at a World Cup before. We beat Japan uh, from behind, 3-1. Cahill scores the brace, but you score the third goal. I mean, does that stand out as one of your most special moments? It does. Uh, For me, probably just as special as uh, the Uruguay moment. I know everyone will ask or or bring up the the Uruguay game, but uh, the Japan game, because it was our first World Cup win and we hadn't qualified for 32 years and we hadn't even scored a goal, like you said, um, and we're losing 1-0 with only about uh, 15 minutes to go. And that's Mm. when I came on and it it was sort of like, that was our World Cup final. If we didn't beat Japan, we weren't going to go through the group stages. And, and we felt that, uh, you know, that would be a massive letdown. Uh, a lot of us uh, had been playing together for a number of years and we, we knew this was going to be our World Cup and probably our only chance. And then, you know, we wanted to get through the group stages to show not only, you know, ourselves, but the rest of the world what we can do. And, uh so to, to come back in, in, in the style that we did, you know, with Timmy scoring two quick goals and then, you know, I topped it off right at the end. Uh, that, for me, was was the game that uh, I'll remember most. Oh, it would have been worth getting the yellow card to rip the top off again. I was disappointed you, you didn't. <laughs> I wondered if you thought about it. Yeah, I did think about it. It, it half came off. It, uh, it went into my mouth, I think. But uh, I'll show you a bit of my... Uh, uh, three hairs that I had on my chest at that stage, but um, it was uh, it was one of those ones that I thought if I rip it off and I get a yellow card, you know, and we were thinking and believing that we could get through the group stages, I didn't want to be suspended for any of the games, that's for sure. Well, before we leave the World Cup, you did get through the group stages. The round of 16 loss to 10-man Italy when Francesco Totti scored the winning penalty. Oh, so hurts even to say it. With the last kick of the game. I mean, if you could go back in time and try to change one thing over the course of your career, would this be it? Yeah, definitely would be it. it, it uh, it's something that, you know, I don't like to look back too much and, and have any regrets because, you know, decisions you make, you have to live with and... And, you know, they happen for a reason and and whatever else. But that's the one moment that I just always think, what if? Um, Because it was was our game to win. Um, Matarazzi, Italian defender, got sent off uh, quite early. Um, And we we started to run all over Italy. We we felt that we were uh, fitter than them anyway. Um, And they were struggling in, in terms of being able to deal with us. But, you know, they always had that threat of, you know, if they attacked us, they could hurt us uh, at any given moment. And then defensively, they were very solid. But, um, you know, uh, and I'm sure Gus, you know, probably looks back as well and thinks that, you know, he could have made subs a a bit earlier. But, um, you know, that's easy in hindsight. He made so many good decisions for us in in the past games that... uh, he felt that he was going to win it or we were going to win it in extra time and that's when he was going to go all out. But um, mm. you know, they scored with the last kick of the game, which really hurt. Yeah, absolutely did. And I know we focused on this World Cup qualifying campaign and the World Cup itself, but you made your debut for the national team all the way back in 97. You, you played in the Confederation Cup that year. I just wanted to ask you before we leave the international stage, what else stands out for you in terms of your career for the Socceroos? Um, I... I... I was able to play in uh, not only Confederations Cup, uh, Asian Cup, um, Olympics, uh, World Cup, but um, you know every time I put on the jersey, I just felt that uh, you know 
you you just grew another a few centimeters. You just felt uh, that you could sort of beat anyone. And and really on paper, we we shouldn't even had a chance against Italy or you know uh, some of those countries that we were up against because they had better individual players. But as a team and as a group, it was uh, we were close and and we supported each other. And a lot of the time that uh, you know I was playing with the likes of Mark Viduka, Craig Moore, Josip Skoko that I went to the Institute of Sport with. So that were special moments for me to be able to play with uh, players that I grew up with. And uh, that's, that's the thing I'll take away most from playing with the national team. We're talking to John Aloisi on This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We'll be back shortly with John, who has experienced the ups and downs as a manager post his playing career. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Well, it's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Football icon John Aloisi is our guest today. John, you played for a long time, but was coaching always something that interested you as an option after you hung up the boots? I think towards the end of my career, I would say I'll go back to when I was in Spain and I was enjoying my football the most. I started to to think about coaching and think about you know certain things that I would do if I was a coach and uh, and I wouldn't do you know what I liked and what I didn't like so um, early on in my career I didn't really think about it but yeah definitely once I started to hit uh, probably 28 29 it started to to pop up that uh, it was something that interested me. You accepted in the end a three-year contract to coach Melbourne Hart in 2012 after a year as the club's youth manager. How, how do you look back on that transition? Did, did you feel, John, like the apprenticeship was long enough? Oh, look, it was one of those moments that it was an opportunity for me. Uh, yeah, of course, you know, uh, as, a, um, as a coach, you know, you want as much experience as possible uh, beforehand, but I don't think anything can actually... Uh, give you that experience uh, other than being in the in the, the, the head coaching role. You know, a lot of uh, assistant coaches that you talk to, that uh, once they step up, they go, well, I didn't see that coming because it's completely different. You know, I thought tactically, uh, you know, I was at a level. Um, what I didn't realise was everything around that in terms of dealing with, you know, boards, budgets uh, that I didn't really know a lot about. And, um, and you know, the media side, that, that, that's something that, uh, you know, you, you learn to deal with as a player and as a head coach. You know, it, it, you either uh, you learn on the spot or, you, you know, you, you start to, to get to uh, understand the environment that you're in. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, I, I thought that experience was really good for me. Um, I know I wasn't successful at Melbourne Heart, but... Um, you know, I didn't realise at the time that, uh, you know, the club were trying to sell or the board was trying to sell the club. And so I was put in a, in a difficult situation because they cut, the, you know, a lot of the, the footballing budget. Um, and it was unfortunate for me that I was part of, you know, in terms of them trying to sell and, and cutting budget. So, but uh, in, I really learnt a lot and, and I thought that uh, that held me in good stead for my next role after that. 
Yeah, and that next role um, was at Brisbane Roar in 2015. And you started well. You got the club to top four finishes, I think, in your first two seasons there and semi-final spots. So things were looking great. But it, it all went downhill in 2018. Looking back on it, what went wrong that season, do you think? What went wrong was that I should have walked six months earlier. And mm. um, and I think what uh, had happened was the, the Melbourne Heart situation actually, uh, you know, it gave me that experience to be able to deal with what I was going to deal with up in Brisbane. And, and uh, when I first stepped into the football club in Brisbane, you know, we got kicked out of our training ground because they, the club hadn't paid. Um, players hadn't been paid their super. Uh, staff, uh, you know, weren't getting paid on time. And so I was able to deal with it and, and hold the group together and, and really support uh, the players and, and the staff. And uh, and for the first uh, two years, you know, the first year we were one point off of winning uh, the Premier's plate. And that was uh, if we beat Melbourne Victory in the last game of the season, uh, we would have won it, which we drew. Uh, mm. We had a really good season. The second year we had a great season as well, finished uh, third. Um, and this is in terms of, you know, we're competing against uh, other clubs that have bigger budgets. And in the third season, the finish in the top six, which was finals football again. So for the three seasons, you know, we probably batted above our weight because of what we are dealing with. Um, but that was after that third season, I I'd, I'd realised that, you know, we needed, if we wanted to compete, we needed to, um, you know, start to, uh, you know, in terms of budget, uh, you know, compete with the other clubs. And with the other clubs, I'm meaning a, a Sydney FC, Melbourne Victory, uh, Melbourne City, Western Sydney Wanderers. And, you know, we're probably about the seventh in terms of our budgets. And so I sat down with the club and, and said to them, you know, uh, this is a situation. What do you want to achieve? They said they want to finish top two, top three. And I said, well, with what we're dealing with, it's going to be nearly impossible. And they said, well, you've done it in the first three years. Um, that we're qualified for the, the final series, you know, you can do it again. And uh, it, it ended up becoming too hard, and um, and I should have left then, um, but I didn't because I wanted to, to stay with the players and you know and and you know see my contract through. But uh, you know, mm. in the end, I, I just felt it was uh, they were on a different path to me, and, and that's why I ended up walking. Yeah, it's it's obviously a line of work that requires a, a thick skin, John. Was any part of you hurt at all by, you know, p- people that you'd... The football industry is quite small. People that you'd played with, um, been friends with, who obviously worked on the other side of the fence that had to be critical of you when things weren't going well. W- were there any moments where you were hurt by some of that? I wouldn't say hurt. I, sometimes, uh, and this is where my uh, television... Um, you know, experiences actually helped me. So after my Melbourne Heart experience, I, I worked on Fox. So I sort of got to see, they see probably uh, 2% of what goes on in, in a football club. They, they, they see the game on the weekend and that's it. Um, mm. And so they don't understand what the ins and outs of what's going on in, in a football club, you know, in terms of uh, not only your budgets, but, you know, even at Melbourne Heart, I was, we were getting... We had about five different training fields, you know, in, in the, the time I was there because, you know, we, we didn't really have a base, um, which doesn't help. And uh, they didn't know that. They didn't see that. They can only call you out on your results. Um, so I I understood that after. And, uh, and you know, it, I'm, you have to be thick-skinned and you have to know what you're dealing with. And what is success? You know, is success only winning uh, the championship or is success actually 
you know, doing um, more than what you can do and getting the best out of your players or the best out of your team in, in you know, certain uh, challenging times. And, and I felt that I, I did that at Brisbane Raw. And, you know, Shane McLaren, uh, two years in a row, was scoring over 20 goals. And before that, he wasn't even playing uh, regular football in uh, in Perth, you know, with uh, Dini Petrados, who's ended up going on to play for our national team. Uh, Brandon Borello going overseas, you know, and, and the actual group of players and the, the type of football we were playing at Brisbane Raw was exciting. And yes, we didn't win the championship, which, you know, you, you want to, and that's what you're striving for. But uh, we had a successful period there, for sure. Mm. Football is important, obviously, but, but health is everything. You had open-heart surgery late last year. I mean, completely unexpected and completely terrifying, I'd imagine, as well. It was terrifying. Uh, um, I, I didn't really know what was wrong with me. I, I just felt um, that I was a bit short of breath and um, I wasn't feeling 100%. And, you know, probably my, my footballing background in, in terms of knowing yourself the way you should be feeling um, helped me. And uh, so I just went to see the local GP and he uh, did a, a, just a normal checkup. And um, once he listened to my heart, he, he asked me if I had a murmur before and I said no. And so they sent me to the cardiologist, and then once they did the ultrasound scans, they, they realised that I had um, a major leak in my mitral valve, and uh, and I was leaking 50% of my blood. So my heart was uh, was expanding to you know, um, you know a, a size that it shouldn't be, and it was overworking. And um, virtually once they they saw that, they said you have to get that uh, repaired or replaced and um, you have to go in and have surgery the, the following week and uh, which was you know it was a shock and um, but it was something that I knew I needed to have and you know life sort of uh, goes past you pretty quick in terms of oh this you know this might all go wrong here yeah, because uh, you know you just don't know how these surgeries are going to go and it was a major surgery they had to actually you know cut through my my sternum my chest and uh you know, put my heart on the machine and uh, and deflate my lungs and, and, and see if they could repair the mitral valve and or they had to replace it with a mechanical valve or a pig's valve. And, and uh, lucky enough for me that I was able to repair it and, and the recovery's gone really well and I feel back to normal again. Jeez, that's fantastic news. Uh, what was a pretty terrifying situation, as I say. And you mentioned the visit to the GP is the first port of call. But what prompted you to go there? Just you touched on it before, but what were the symptoms? How did you know something was up? The thing was uh, a little bit short of breath. So when I would uh, sit down or, or lie down and watch, and mainly it was football because uh, yeah, I was doing some optus work and so I'd watch a lot of uh, games at home on my TV and, and, and I could just feel my heart like palpitating and, and really sort of sometimes it felt like it was jumping out of my chest and uh, so that that's that was the, the thing that I realised that something wasn't quite right and uh, yeah, lucky I did because um, you know I was still uh, doing you know my workouts at home and uh, you know going to the gym and you know if I pushed myself too much you know who knows what could have happened because they did ask me if I had a heart attack and and I didn't think I did, and I don't think I, I did have one, but uh, I could have easily had one, and it could have been fatal. Wow. And what now, John? I mean, you mentioned Optus Sport. You've done some great TV work for them, but the management fire still burns. How close do you think you were to the Melbourne Victory job that was awarded to Grant Brebner? 
I was pretty close, and that's what they, they said to me anyway. I, I did a couple of uh, presentations uh, for the football committee and then to the board, and then um, it was uh, supposedly down to two, and um, they called me up the night before. Uh, they announced Grant Bredner, and um, they said they were going to go in a different direction, which you know I understand that's part of coaching, that's part of uh, being in management. You know, Some jobs you get and some you miss out on. I definitely will get back into to coaching, um, whether that's here in Australia or eventually going overseas again. But um, you know, I enjoy it. Uh, there's still uh, you know that fire in the belly. Um, you know, I'm wanting to achieve more, and uh, you know, I I feel that I've got a lot to, to give still in, in the coaching uh, scenario. But you know, in the meantime, um, I'm doing Optus work, which is great because we've got Champions League and and also Premier League. Yeah, that's just around the corner and it keeps me involved in football. And I imagine family life keeps you pretty busy as well. Of course, you and your lovely wife, Angela, I think you got married at 20, didn't you? And you got the three daughters as well. I think they're all keen on basketball, aren't they? How do the old knees go on the basketball court? Yeah, I wouldn't say they're great basketballers. They play a little bit of basketball. They play uh, a bit of tennis. Uh, They're into their sport, but without them being majorly into it, it's more of a... you know, you know, playing with their friends and and you know doing sports to to actually take the you know not feel the pressures of schooling because my eldest daughter is in year twelve uh, and doing you know her well she's got her mock exams at the moment and so that keeps you busy. Uh, soon enough she'll be off to uni, so they're, they're pretty much into their schooling and um, you know they they do their best and and work hard at school. Fantastic. Well, John Aloisi, it's been great to chat today. I'm not overstating things by saying that you're an Australian sporting hero and while you'll always be remembered for that penalty in 2005, you very much had a long and distinguished career at the very top of your chosen sport. You were driven, you were dedicated, but you're also humble as well and no doubt there's more chapters to be written in your managerial journey. We wish you the best of luck. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Well, thanks again for having me on. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening once again to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Just jump online to find tobinbrothers.com.au. We'll catch you next week to celebrate the life of another sporting icon. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au. Predict Australia's score with a crystal ball. And it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.